What's up, Stitches? It's me, your gal, Isabella Rosner, and this is So What? It's been a little while, but I'm delighted to be back with a new episode all about the 18th century English needle painter, Mary Linwood. Today, I'm interviewing Dr. Heidi Strobel, a leading expert on Linwood. And together we talk about Linwood's art and career, the reception of British art in the 18th century, embroidered portraiture, and a whole host of other excellent stuff. I love Heidi's work and I loved chatting with her even more, so I'm really excited for you all to learn as much from her as I did. Before we get into the interview, I gotta do a little social media spiel. It's been a long time. Accompanying this podcast episode are images of what Heidi and I discuss on the So What social media pages, which is helpful because podcasting is not a visual medium, but needlework very much is. To see the objects we are chatting about, go to at So What Podcast, S-E-W-W-H-A-T Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or go to SoWhatPodcast.com. Okay, now it's time to introduce the legendary Heidi Strobel. Heidi is the Associate Dean of Academic and Student Affairs in the College of Visual Arts and Design at the University of North Texas. Her research focuses on the intersection of gender and 18th century material culture, which, you know, I love, I'm obsessed with it, delightful intersection, yes. Strobel's publications include The Artistic Matronage of Queen Charlotte, 1744 to 1818, How a Queen Promoted Both Art and Female Artists in English Society, which was published in 2011. She co-edited Materializing Gender in 18th Century Europe in 2016 with Jennifer Germain, which included her essay, Mary Linwood, Thomas Gainsborough, and the Art of Installation Embroidery, an analysis of Mary Linwood's innovative display practices and emulation of Thomas Gainsborough. Linwood, born 1755 and died 1845, the first female gallery owner in London, is the subject of Strobel's The Art of Mary Linwood, Embroidery, Installation, and the Popular Picturesque, a monograph and catalog of Linwood's works to be published by Bloomsbury in early 2023, barring further cataclysmic events. Fingers crossed. Recent publications include Women's Embroidered Self-Portraiture in the Late 18th Century, Authorship, Agency, and Artistry in Literature Compass in 2021, and an article on Linwood on the website arthurstory.net entitled Mary Linwood's Juggling Act. She also enjoys embroidering in her spare time and is currently working on a comforter based on the 18th century table rug designs of Connecticut native Mary Foote. And that is fun and interesting because that is a throwback to Lynn Bassett's episode a few episodes ago. Lynn and I talk a lot about the designs of Mary Foote. Small world! Anyway, now one more thing before we get into the episode. While Heidi talks in detail about Mary Linwood in this episode, we also discuss a few of her contemporaries without delving into their biographical info too much, so I thought I ought to give you all a little context for those gals. They are Mary Morris Knowles, Mary Delaney, Anne Eliza Moritt, and Margaret Ansel. I talked about Knowles and Delaney in episode 21 of season one a long time ago, and the episode was called The Art of Craft, Needlework in the Art and Craft Debate, if you want to take a listen back to that. Mary Morris Knowles was a Quaker poet, abolitionist, and esteemed needleworker. 
Mary Delaney is best known for her botanical paper mosaics, but her needlework was equally skilled and is some of my absolute favorite needlework ever. Anne Eliza Moritz was also a needle painter of the same time period approximately, but very little is known about her, as her works are still held at her family home, which is Rokeby Park. Very little is also known about Margaret Ansel. Only two of her needle paintings are in public collections. Historic documentation tells us that Ansel was, quote, at the boarding school Tottenham, end quote, in 1782. And I recently discovered that she was a Quaker, hey, good for me, and that she almost definitely taught at the Quaker school in Tottenham, where quite a few schoolgirl samplers were made. Excellent news, small world once again. And now that I've given you some context, let's get into the episode. Heidi, thank you so much for being here today. It is an honor to speak to you. It is my pleasure to be here today. I am so excited to be on the podcast, and I've been looking forward to this, and I'm ready to talk about late 18th, early 19th century historical embroidery. Can't wait. It's really like something I have barely talked about on the podcast thus far. So it's been a long time coming. How did you come to study art history and textile studies more specifically? And after you answer that, I will make you answer the question, what brought you to research Mary Linwood specifically? When I was in college, I wanted to go to law school, like Mm. everybody else um, (laughs) who graduated in the you know, the early nineties and I'd loved art history and I gave working in a law firm a chance. And I thought this is for the birds. I'm going to go back to what I really like. And so um, that's why I started to study art history. My parents encouraged me, even though it wasn't maybe the most practical field to go into at the time law, for example, would have been um, more lucrative. Um, But I really loved, I loved art history and So in terms of textile studies, when I got ready to do my dissertation, I was very interested in working on Queen Charlotte Mm. of England, who has been made quite well known. Yeah, exactly. Through Bridgerton. And so I was, um, and in fact, I've, on a side note, I really am, I'm excited to, like, I've already drafted an email to Shonda Rhimes to kind of, um, yeah, I have not sent it yet, but I'm kind of excited to. Um, reach out to her. I, she knows, you know, she's already done a lot of research on Queen Charlotte, but that was kind of my, my um, introduction to textiles because she, Queen Charlotte was a great embroiderer. She also encouraged this particular medium. She encouraged, this was a broader thing, but she encouraged female artists. Mm. And so um, my dissertation was on her encouragement of female artists. And so So um, she supported, by my count, she supported 16 female artists. So Queen Charlotte was my way into historical embroidery. And then I came across Mary Linwood and Mm. Charlotte's encouragement of Mary Linwood. And I was like, this is really cool. Um, Here we have a queen who, in the midst of having 15 children, has time to support these artists. And I came up with this idea that I'd seen in other countries of women in prominent positions um, like queens and duchesses reaching out and encouraging other female artists. So I was kind of interested in that idea of matronage um, is what Mm -hmm. I called it. And I wrote an article on that and it was published in 2005. And so my thought was why, you know, how did this come about? You know, there's the social aspect where we have Queen Charlotte who enjoys, who enjoyed doing embroidery. Mary Linwood, who was a good embroiderer, 
that being kind of a skill, but then also I just started thinking about networking and how women today and how women in the past may have moved forward professionally. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Love that. So that was, that was what kind of my entrance into Mary Linwood. Um, in terms of textile studies, I grew up with a mother who um, loved to do things with a needle. And so I learned things. I learned how to embroider that way. I became friends in graduate school. My best friend from graduate school is a quilter. And um, I did my first and last quilt in graduate school um, with her. And just in general, I liked, I like stabbing things. Um, That's my (laughs) joke. That's my joke. But I do. (laughs) I love, I'm a detail oriented person. Mm -hmm. I love using embroidery for sanity. I mean, for me, and this is kind of going to one of your later questions as well, but for me, it is a source of sanity. I have been in, um, I might be, I might do it myself while I'm someplace I don't want to be. It could be a family gathering where I don't want to be. And it's something to kind of distract me from that. I do it um, when I'm watching a movie because I just enjoy that. Yeah. Um, I do it in the car when I'm, when I'm not driving. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I just, these are all, so I guess um, my interest is both academic and personal. And in Mary Linwood, these interests converged. Because, I love that. Yeah, the, I, there was this woman who, you know, um, was so different than, she was different in doing with her embroidery what other women who were prominent embroiderers did at that time. So she mm-hmm. had a different trajectory. So I was fascinated by that. But I also, just on a personal note, liked what she did. So I found it easier to work on something like this because it was, I had a personal interest in it. It, I could understand what a French knot was or a straight stitch, you know, or chain stitch. Mm -hmm. So all these things kind of came together. Um, and there are about half of her textiles survive. And so I'm pretty lucky with that. Um, Mm -hmm. and I've seen, I've seen all of her surviving textiles. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Congratulations. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. So there's one at Yale. um, That's a tigress after George Stubbs. And I've worked with that one a great deal. Mm -hmm. And there's one in South Africa, which is my favorite Marilyn with a self portrait, which we'll talk more about in a little bit, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And then there are, there's one in the V&A of Napoleon. And it's right next to John Hopner's portrait of Mary Linwood. Um, so that's kind of cool. Um, so I can probably tell you what room it's in too. So those two <laughs> each other. And then um, most of them are at the, um, the Leicester City Museum because she was from Leicester. I've always found it very surprising the lack of information that has existed in the world about these female needle painters at this specific point in time because they were doing something very exceptional. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's it's their time to shine. And I think that is happening. So it's an honor to interview you because you're you're in the center of it. You're you're making the waves. You're making it happen. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. We've already talked a lot about Mary Linwood, but I am assuming that many Sew It listeners don't actually know who that is. So for those lovely people, could you please explain who Mary Linwood was and why her needlework is significant? Sure. So Mary Linwood was born in 1755. She was born in Birmingham and she moved to Leicester when she was about 10. 
Um, her mother seems to have had a very um, important presence in her life. Her mother was also a master embroiderer and established a boarding school in Leicester in 1764, where Mary then eventually worked. Now, as um, many um, people who are interested in 18th century embroidery know, um, boarding schools, day schools, or sleepover schools were places where that was one of the skills that, that girls were expect, expected mm-hmm. to master. So this is a place where Marilyn Wood learned her embroidery skills, and she and her mother actually exhibited at the same time in the similar in the same exhibitions in the 1776 and 1778 at the Society of Artists exhibitions in London. Cool. Yeah. So um, as a young woman, Mary was, um, I now think of her as building her of of embroidered copies in the late 1770s, while she also worked at the Leicester boarding school. So she was doing these two things. Um, She was traveling around to some private collections to make copies. So she made full scale, beautiful copies of famous paintings. So one of my favorite ones that she did is a one called um, Salvador Mundi, and it's a a copy of a painting by Carlo Dolce. That is in the Royal Collection, and it is um, the only Linwood in the Royal Collection, and it is absolutely beautiful. Mm. It has has kept a lot of its um, original color because it's been so infrequently exhibited um, by the, you know, by the Royal family. Um, And so, like, I, I asked the curator, how often it'd be, how often it had been exhibited. And he's like, well, only if like we had to take down a last supper um, because oh. then we would just put that up in space because it's Christ blessing um, the bread and the wine. So she would make copies of these really famous um, paintings. Sometimes she was able to visit them and see them in person. Like with the Salvatore Mundi, she went to the owner's home. Other times she um, either borrowed or rented a painting to make a copy of, which is something that's really strange to me, but she, yeah. So she rented a Gainsborough from Richard Brinsley Sheridan, the famous playwright. So, uh, you know, she would do, um, yeah, she, she um, had kind of a wide ranging access to different um, paintings. She also sometimes used prints to make her copies she also lived a really long life. So she died about four months shy of her 90th birthday in 1845. Yeah, so this is interesting if we think about why she isn't well known. Um, mm. Because what happened to her is her, she was popular, especially with her London gallery, which I'll talk about in a moment. But her popularity, it's almost as if her gallery was open too long because it became kind of passe. Um Brutal. If we think about historical um, developments in the textile field, think about the sewing machine being invented in 1844. And I need to do more research on this, but when I was listening to your one of your podcasts, the hand embroidery machine, like mm. that's something. So that's earlier, right? That's 1828. So we have these technological inventions coming about that replace or supersede the popularity of hand embroidery. Until the 1870s with the Royal School of Needlework and with William and May Morris, we're going back to doing things by hand becomes novel again. So it's like her, her, you know, after like she was very popular, her space um, galleries were very popular in the 18 teens and the 1820s. But then, you know, she kind of, 
either kept her gallery open too long or just was the chronology in relation to, you know, um, technological inventions that that kind of worked against her, if that makes sense. That totally makes sense. And she really, oh, she really did die right at the advent of Berlin wool work. Right, right. Which her work is often confused with. And it's not Berlin wool work. That's that's crazy because it's two very different things. But that is, that makes so much sense that she really like, she lived to buy into and even create the style, the prominent needlework style, but then she also lived to watch it lose popularity in the face of increasing technology and like a much more streamlined needlework style. Yeah. You know, Morris goes back to this kind of idea of, of handwork and, and, you know, and the leak embroidery society too. I mean, the same thing, like she kind of she just missed her chronological window in, in that it became popular again, that type of embroidery became popular mm. again, you know, in the 1870s. I'll defend her in this way. She did take advantage of the novelty of her gallery. So she opened, she had a, her first exhibition of her copies of famous paintings in the 1780s. Then she opened one, she opened a, a permanent, a, I'm gonna say a temporary permanent gallery in Hanover Square from 1798 to 1801. At this point, she had more embroidery, um, embroidered copies than she had at her previous exhibition in the 1780s. She closes that at about the time her mom's health is in demise. And then she becomes a long-term lessee of a house in Leicester Square in 1806. She pays a lot of money for renovations of that home Mm. between 1806 and 1809, it's renovated. And she opens her truly permanent gallery space in Leicester Square. And that's the one that's open from 1809 to 1845. Now, why this is important is she was the first female gallery owner in London. Yes. Yes. And so and she also did not sell any of her works, but her revenue came from charging tickets and charging mm. admission to her gallery. So some of the famous people who went to her gallery include Queen Charlotte, Queen, Queen Adelaide, who was um, the, the wife of King William, both of those two women, very well known for um, being good embroiderers. Mm. Um, the actress, Sarah Sitting, Siddons, oh, yeah. the diarist, Joseph Farrington, um, the poet, Robert Southey, and probably his good friend, William Wordsworth. Mm. <laughs> so, um, and that's then, a good list. Wow. It is. And then um, in the de- in the kind of decade when uh, Linwood's gallery was not as popular, we know that Daniel Webster, um, when he was doing his tour of Europe, came over from America and went to Europe and visited the Linwood gallery as well. Constable, I think probably Constable went to her gallery as well. But Constable in his di- diary from the early 19th century um, mentions that his first job in London was, this is so weird, painting the background of an embroidery by Miss Linwood. So, so <laughs> there are, so there are examples of, and, and, and we know this, that there are examples where you see painting and um, textile work in the same, in the same composition. Right. Um, Schoolgirl, those silkwork pictures, right. the yeah. watercolor faces and arms. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I even know of one that's an embroidered portrait um, by a woman who 
lived most of her life in Michigan. Um, and I read your there. article about that. Yeah, that was exactly. Great, yeah, loved yeah, it. It, yeah, it's Maria Teresa LaSalle. So that's a great common, a great um, example of a combination of those styles. What we do know is that Mary Lynn would preferred pastoral subject matter. Um, either she basically went with pastoral or genre scenes. Mm. So the pastoral scenes would have been, you know, having constable work on a, um, one of her textiles that would have been in the pastoral category. Um, so she had all these intersections with well-known people. Her gallery was well-known. If we think about her as being kind of the textile version of Madame Tussaud, Mm. especially since like, like, um, Tussaud. So Tussaud before she settled down on Baker street in 1835, Tussaud took her show on the road. And Linwood kind of did that too. In addition to those London exhibitions that I just spoke about, she, between 1802 and 1806, so after she had closed down the permanent temporary exhibition at Hanover Square, she took her show um, to Cork. She took it to Dublin. She took it to Edinburgh. And she had plans to exhibit in Glasgow. And she never did that. But she did, she, you know, took the show on the road um, with cities that were popular um, with the London theater circuit. Ah, uh, huh. Yeah. This is something that Tussaud later did as well. So that, so Mary Linwood was a, an entrepreneur. Um, I'm fascinated by the fact that she continued to run the boarding school in Leicester and operate the gallery in London in Leicester square. So this is one of the funny things, um, haha funny about working <laughs> on Mary Linwood is Leicester versus London's Leicester square. When you first said it, I had a little giggle to myself. And it, yeah, she, I'm like, she leaves Leicester course. only to go to Leicester. Indeed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so like, how did she do this? And so that to me, I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about today. Um, one thing I want to talk about is what our role is as historians for um, fleshing out the things that aren't known about prominent mm. women. So I don't know exactly how Linwood traveled back and forth between London and Leicester. I'm not sure. I, I assume that it was probably, you know, um, carriage or she could have used the canal because there was a canal that kind of branched off into Leicester that would get her to London. But, you know, how do we figure out these things that aren't known? She doesn't write about, she didn't write about how she traveled. She didn't write about having a general manager of any kind, which in theory she would have needed if she was leaving her collection in London to go back to tend to the boarding school that she inherited from her mother. Yeah. So she was a juggler. And I think as um, an academic who is a caregiver, um, who has been a caregiver to both my parents and to my children, I'm Mm. fascinated by this, this juggling, this very modern juggling act that Linwood had in the late 1780s, 70s, 90s, you know, or like, how did she do this? Like, how, you know, how did she manage this? I think one thing was um, one way that she managed it is she never got married. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. So I have no, I have no, indica- I have no idea of what her sexuality was. I have no idea of, you know, personal relationships. The most that I, that I know is that the industrialist, um, Matthew Bolton, who was her mentor, likely had a crush on her. And there was 
big age difference between the two, but I don't know anything about her relationship status, except for the fact that she chose to remain unmarried, which I find fascinating. Now, was she trying to figure out how to navigate, like, how do I keep my money that I earn when I'm selling tickets to these exhibitions? How do I keep that in my own name? How do I, rather than having that passed off to a husband, and um, those two endeavors that she had in London and Leicester were also symbiotic because the, the money that she earned at the, the, the boarding school in Leicester helped with the seed money for um, the gallery in Leicester Square. Fascinating. Yeah, maybe yeah. she just didn't have time to do both. Like yeah. she had time to do both, but she didn't also have time to be a typically late 18th century wife, mother, you know, and the, and the caretaking and emotional labor that is required of that sort of person in that time period. Hmm. Does she have diaries or is it from letters? Like what is their surviving documentation besides the objects? Okay. So there, um, she does have letters and I've read all the extant letters. There are some in, at the Birmingham record office, a few in Leicester, um, a few in other places in the UK and in the States, but there, there are no registers of like ticket registers um, mm. from her galleries. So what I've done, like, the, and so that was one challenge for me. I know how much she was worth financially when she died, which was a little over 5 million <gasps> pounds. Yeah. Yeah. So Wait, and I'll, 5 I'll, million I'll, pounds in, in, in 1844. No, that's, okay. in our, that's in our currency. But it was 45,000 pounds in 1845 currency. Okay. So using a, a calculator um, that, and I'll have to go back and look at my notes, but I think that goes to about 5.2 million pounds. Whoa. Right. So I had to extrapolate. Wow. I'm like, okay, so I know her gallery was open for X amount of years. I know what she was worth when she died. I know she charged one shilling for tickets in these years and two shillings for tickets in these years. So I kind of, so this is one of those things like, I was a little nervous about doing it to kind of figure out how many visitors she had, but I'm like, if I don't try it this way, nobody's going to do it. Like, you know, so. Right. Yeah. So I've kind of extrapolated that about 3000 visitors on average came to her gallery per year. So no ticket registers, no diary, some letters, one scrapbook. Oh, and that's it. Wow. So you yeah. must have the problem that I think I have and that anybody who studies historic women has, which yeah. is you, you, if you're lucky, like you are, and I am with my Quaker women, you get information like uh, where they were born, who their parents were, where yeah. they were and the kind of work they were making. You get, you get the sort of biographical information, but you do not get the emotional information yeah. or like the even the uh, information about motivations. Yeah. Like ha- I bet she never wrote why she started doing this. Did she? Yeah. No, right. no. And I've surmised that she, I mean, she has letters with Bolton, but they're more like letters because Bolton knew Bolton had more social cachet than Mary Linwood did in the 1780s. And Mary Linwood basically asked Bolton if she, if he would arrange for her to have an audience with Queen Charlotte. And so what happens gradually to Mary Linwood is that her 
social class really changes during her life's lifetime, which I find really fascinating. So she her, was born, her mother was a school teacher by necessity, I think. Father was trained as a linen draper, but didn't want to practice that and opened a wine shop in um, Leicester in the 1760s. It wasn't successful. I don't know why. Um, I have my theories about why the wine shop may have not been successful. Um, Mary Linwood's grandfather, her mother's father, was a toy, was specialized in toys, silver toys. Mm -hmm. So in the 18th century, that would be things like actual silver toys, but also things like belt buckles. And um, I'm thinking of like decorations, like silver kind of um, gadgets Mm-hmm. So things that would be on the table. So it's more kind of a global specialization. So I think that Linwood saw this serial production of luxury items and was interested in doing this in her own way. She saw her grandfather making these, you know, things like um, wine bottle. They used to have, um, well, they still do, I guess, today, but like little wine bottle um, there would be necklaces for wine bottles. So like yeah. telling you that it's Madeira. Yeah. Little yeah. Chains, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Little chains. So <laughs> he made those. And so I think that I think she was influenced by seeing her grandfather making these like really, you know, um, things that were serial produced or in other words, mm-hmm. copies. And so I think that that was, that was kind of profoundly important for her, but it is, um, been challenging working on on Linwood, but I also have her catalogs, and I forgot to mention that. So she produced um, catalogs, not yearly, but pretty close to yearly on her um, uh, exhibitions in London. And so I have, and in fact, so I have the temporary exhibition catalogs, and then I have the ones from Leicester Square, and those for me are, are really helpful because I can again, you know, if somebody says to me, I think I have a Mary Linwood, and it is. Um, a copy of a Turner painting. I'm like, you don't have a Mary Linwood because Linwood did not copy right. Turner. You know, the other thing I think that's important about Mary Linwood to think about in terms of British identity is that 85.4% of her copies were after British artists. Ah. And most of them were contemporary British artists. Like Reynolds, she made five copies of his paintings. She made six copies of Gainsborough's paintings. She made five or six after Moreland. And she made, who am I forgetting? John Cousins. She made Mm. five or six after John Cousins. Couple after John Russell. So that's like a British kind of crew right there. Um, One after Maria Causeway, the only woman whose work she replicated. So one of the things that I talk about in my manuscript is this idea of cultural patriotism. I think that she was very much um, looking towards celebrating this modern school of British mm-hmm. painting um, that was hopefully in ascendant, in ascendancy, right? That was going to be as good as what was produced by the continent. So I think that that is an important part of her um, contribution to textile studies and even more broadly art history. And that I think because of her gender and because of her genre, that has been lost to history until now, until now. Totally. Heck yeah. yeah. She (laughs) really like, she clearly was a very cunning businesswoman because in addition to exhibiting her skill, this was like a great 
advertisement for her school. And so it's like students like, oh, you can go to my school and not only will you learn fabulous needlework like this, but I'm clearly engaged in what is happening in like British culture. Like your child will not be only invested in needlework, but she will know about art and music and even piety, right? She will have a a, a sort of Christian upbringing with all the images that sort of the Christ image you were talking about earlier. Like it feels like the ultimate advert for the school that she ran at the same time. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I know of at least one example, again, going back to John Constable, where he's working for her in, for Linwood in London, I think it's 18, a letter from 1802. And he writes about this. And then his, one of his nieces later enrolls in the boarding school run by Linwood in Leicester. (laughs) I know, I know. So it's just a very, um, an interesting kind of juggling act. I just think about this idea of, of juggling and how many of us, um, especially female academics are, this is a normal thing for us. Like how do we balance the caregiving responsibilities that are expected of us, the kind of gendered expectations for mm. us, and then what we need to do professionally. Totally true. Yeah. Mary Linwood was doing it all. I know. I know. So girl yeah. boss, the I know. girl boss. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Job, Mary. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you. That explanation was so thorough and so fascinating. Like I thought that I knew, I mean, I knew as much as I could know, I guess about Mary Linwood, but you taught me a lot just right there. So thank you. You're welcome. I mentioned this at the beginning. I've spent a surprisingly little amount of time talking about 18th century needle painting and that sort of specific type of uh, British needlework on this podcast. I talked about it in an episode in I think my, my first season when I was talking about the art versus craft debate when it came to needlework, but it's been a long time. So because it's been a long time and probably many people who are listening to this episode did not listen to that episode. And I probably didn't do a very good job of talking about it. I will ask, could you define and describe the trend of needle painting in the 18th century that Mary Linwood was involved in and perhaps even leading? And could you briefly discuss how Mary Linwood's work compares to that of her needle painting contemporaries like Mary Morris Knowles and Mary Delaney? Yes, of course. So I would say needle painting quite simply is the act of making a copy, often in wool, Mm. on a wool linen support um, of a famous artwork. Wasn't always a copy of a famous artwork, but it often was. So if we think about um, Mary Morris Knowles, her well-known copy of Zoffney's portrait of George III comes to mind. Yes. Yes. Um, I'll talk about Mary Delaney in a moment. So one thing to think about, I think during the 18th century, is that it really was a genre bending um, century. Mm. So, and you talk about this in one of your podcasts, the Boys to Men podcast, but the idea of what a professional is, right? Versus an amateur. So one of the things that I talk about in my own work is, you know, Mary Linwood started out as a teacher, trained as a teacher, mm-hmm. teaching other girls how to embroider as a kind of a skill, right? So amateur embroidery. But then Mary Linwood very much goes on to become a professional 
using this skill that we associate with amateurism. So I think like there's this kind of artificial divide between professional and amateur in the 18th century, right? Mm-hmm. So we think that's thought about very much according to 21st century standards. Then I also think there's um, an interesting kind of elision between painting and embroidery in the 18th century. And then, and I know we'll talk about this later, but what is art and what is craft? That's also, mm-hmm. right? So Marilyn Wood is looking at, at famous paintings and making very high quality copies of mm-hmm. those paintings using stitches that really appear more like brush strokes. They're more, they're not what we think about in terms of more traditional embroidery stitches. So she's using a lot of straight stitches, some French knots, um, but not a lot of, you don't see a lot of other kind of more complicated stitches than that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure she knew how to do those stitches. It's just that they don't appear in her textiles because straight stitches, quite honestly, um, benefited her. Sometimes she would use longer stitches to replicate a particular part of a painting. So she was fabulous at um, depicting textiles in her textile copies, which kind of makes sense that she would be so good at replicating textiles in textile form. Um, So yeah. So, so like, for example, in the Salvador Mundi, there's a beautiful, the altar cloth on to Christ's right is beautiful and very three-dimensional. So she was great at doing objects sometimes she was okay at doing humans, but not as like the faces weren't as strong. So the Salvador Mundi is um, kind of a good example of this because his face, Christ's face is kind of flat. But if we Mm -hmm. think about how Linwood was trained, did she sit in a life study class and learn how to draw people? No. So of course Mm -hmm. she didn't know how to do figural stuff as well as she knew how to do things like objects and landscape. These were things that were easier for her to master. So quite often her very good textile copies look very similar to a painting, you know, like emulate that kind of chiaroscuro that you see in a painting. So again, the Salvador Mundi is a good example of that. Um, Her her self-portrait is also a good example of that. So Mary Morris Knowles Mm. was similarly skilled, but Knowles had a much smaller production Mm -hmm. in part um, because of her religious beliefs. Um, But I mean, I think the thing that's really kind of fascinating, they both produce self-portraits, a fascinating statement of agency. So Mary Delaney is different in that um, she does a lot more uh, um, smaller work and um, what I would think of as gifts. There's an embroidered needlework tool case that she gave to Queen Charlotte. So um, Delaney is doing things that are more kind of, um, you know, decorative mm-hmm. than, but then I feel uncomfortable because I'm kind of getting back into like, I like know, what's decorative and what's not decorative. Right. so Delaney's decorating these gowns and, um, and for Delaney, I see this kind of beautiful elision between her botanical skills totally. and her embroidery skills. Um, Mort is also an interesting, um, figure in that uh, her Rokeby Park was a, a place that people went to to see these copies of, of famous paintings. There's a diary entry from Robert Southey, who was a poet laureate in England, and in the, I think it was the 20s and 30s, 1820s and 30s. And so he talks about, he talks with, he mentions William Wordsworth in this diary entry, 
And he says that William Wordsworth is describing the difference between Aaron, Anne Moritz embroidery and Mary oh. Linwood's embroidery. Whoa. I know. I'm like, okay. What? So it's like that kind of piecemeal approach. We don't know much about her, but she was doing the same kind of thing. A lot of women less gifted than Mary Morris Knowles, less gifted than Mary Linwood, less gifted than um, Anna Liza Moritz were doing this. Mm. You know, we're making copies of paintings or prints and using them to decorate their homes. We just haven't, we don't have a lot of these that survive because, you know, somebody looking at it in 1860 or 70 and saying, oh, great aunt Elizabeth did that. And it's, you know, falling apart. And I'm just going to toss it into the rubbish bin. Yeah. 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 It makes yeah. me very sad, obviously. But yeah. I mean, it also, I, I do have, you know, it's the excitement and hope of what hasn't been found yet. But thank you for, you laid it all out very beautifully. Thank you. You're welcome. What I find so interesting about this crew of need, like needle painting women at the time is there are so many overlaps between all of them. Mary Linwood and Margaret Ansel, who you introduced me to, right. were both teachers. They were school teachers as well as need, these needle painting women. And yeah. that suggests that it's not, you know, when I was first thinking about these women, I was like, oh, this is a group of very specific you know, middling to upper, uh, middling sort to upper class women who had the time and resources to stitch, which most of them were, but Margaret and Mary were clearly businesswomen as well. They had to earn a living. Right. Because you told me about Margaret Ansel uh, in a previous Zoom, I started researching her. She is a hundred percent a Quaker. She is a Quaker woman. Oh, that's great. Which is crazy. She's a quick, because like, we know the needlework coming out of Tottenham school, the the Quaker needlework, but then you get, that's another intersection between Margaret Ansel and Mary Morris Knowles. These two are, these are Quaker women. They're part of the same community. They're working in different areas, but they have the same religious beliefs. Yeah. And yet something about needle painting brings them together as well. It's so interesting that like, yeah, this point in time people from very different walks of life, people with different experiences and geographically very disparate are coming together to create a very specific and not super long lasting needlework aesthetic. Yeah. And Ansel's fascinating to me. And I hope you do more with her. What she chooses to, her most famous uh, textiles are after Benjamin West's um, pair of paintings, which depict William Penn. So we're just like kind of going back in terms of like this beautiful Quaker provenance here, so to speak. <laughs> totally. And then she exhibits those textiles in 1776 in London, which is a fairly important year to be exhibiting the work of an American artist. You know, like, like what, what's up with that? Totally. You know, was and- she, you know, like that is just very weird and brave. Yeah. It seems quite brave. Needlework generally, I feel, allows women to voice oftentimes subversive opinions. We know that that's a large theme in the history of textiles, but needle painting is such an interesting moment because it's often those subversive or more mainstream opinions made into art. And I'm putting art in heavy quotation marks here, but these you know, textiles at this point, needlework was actually being considered art rather than craft. It was on display. And Margaret Ansel was able to put what could be considered like quite a radical, 
bold piece of painting yeah. turned needlework on display. Yeah, it's just very strange. It's very strange. And I mean, another thing that I think about and I'm struggling with right now is how does the work of Marilyn would relate to Opus Anglicanum? Mm. It, she never wrote about seeing ecclesiastical embroidery, but she also didn't write about a bunch of things. So like, I, I could only assume that she would have seen some of it. Right. If she went to church, up. she probably yeah, exactly. Some. I mean, she went, she went to an Episcopal church or an Anglican church. Um, and so what's the connection there? So Mary Linwood had the, the, the neat thing about her gallery was it was subdivided into different rooms. Mm. And so what she would do in these different rooms is she would install needlework that had similar themes. So for example, in the dens, she had um, two rep- replicas after Stubbs paintings in the Gothic room. She had a couple of different images, including a portrait of Napoleon, which is fascinating. Um so weird. So, okay. Yeah, it is weird. And then she had a scripture. <laughs> she had a scripture room, and in the scripture room, she had four religious embroideries. That was unusual for her. Like she did not do like religious embroidery in general. It just wasn't something that she chose to 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 do. But these four pieces, including the Salvador Mundi, were all in this one room that was decorated, you know, kind of in a very somber way. And the Salvador Mundi at times was exhibited on this kind of elevated in this elevated table in a niche. Um, So the kind of idea of the scripture room, the kind of separation of those four textiles into a separate room suggests some familiarity with Opus Opus Anglicanum. Mm. But I just don't, you know, one of the things I argue in my next to my, my next to my last chapter in my manuscript is that, you know, by looking, by working with this religious embroidery, it may have been a way for her, Mary Linwood, to kind of insert herself into this textile tradition for which England was very well known. How, in your opinion, does Mary Linwood's work complicate the art versus craft debate? And I know that we've already kind of talked around this issue, so yeah. I'm ready to get into it. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that the art versus craft is really um, a 20th century, late 19th century, 20th century, early 21st century Mm. kind of ongoing false polarization. Um, You know, so I think that the people who are writing about art history in the 19th century, with some exceptions, were mostly men. Mm -hmm. And so there's a vested interest in kind of keeping certain media in a particular category, you know, embroidery is done by women, by wealthy women. It's an amateur thing. And there are plenty of women here that don't kind of fit into this. And some men too, from the 18th century, 19th century, who don't kind of fit into this, like, I think, again, a false kind of paradigm, like this is, you know, these are the categories. I think it's easy to think about art versus craft in the 21st century when we have our DIY stuff. Um, but I think that that was really a false dichotomy during Mary Linwood's time. I don't think anybody came in and said, oh, your work's so crafty. The, <laughs> the, the descriptions survive often say her, her paint, her embroidery looked very close to a painting, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think when we have people like Clement Greenberg 
talking about craft and talking about craft being kitschy that really kind of puts textile arts that that would that that hurt textile arts and so I think you know I think that we need to be careful when I started working on this project not so much now because I've done been working on it for so long but like um some people would be like well that's just I mean it's women's craft and I'm like well is it though like really is it because it was women's art it was her production and isn't it almost as important that she supported herself, made a lot of money and was able to like, she had like 17 nieces and nephews. When she died, she left them all bequests in her will. Um, mm. So like, isn't it, isn't it kind of denigrating to say this is this, you know, rather yeah. than, you know, because the way that she exhibited her textile copies, if we want to buy into that polarity, she exhibited and she emulated Royal Academy display practices, you know, the kind of red walls, the balustrade in the gallery, the catalog that went along, you know, so to kind of guide you how to go through the collection, but also how to experience these works. So I think it's hard for me to answer this concisely because I keep on thinking about it. But for example, Mary Linwood's work was most recently exhibited publicly in the folk art exhibition at the Tate Britain and folk art again I'm like this is the wrong category like she wasn't a folk artist you know she just and I know from talking to a couple people about the exhibition this was a way to exhibit things that had been little seen around England so things like um well embroidery made by men by sailors for example Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um quilts made by soldiers um male uh, British soldiers in World War One um decorations of boats things made out of animal bones so it's like this kind of hodgepodge but I feel like Mary Linwood's work is consistently miscategorized I don't think Mm. craft is a good way to describe it folk art is not the right way to describe it hands down so I just think this is a very I don't again I think it's anachronistic before I move on to the questions that aren't specifically Mary Linwood focused, is there anything that we haven't discussed about her that you would like to discuss about her? I think it's fascinating. And I did talk about this in the article that I sent you from the Literary Compass. Yeah, so, loved yeah. it, by the yeah. way. Really enjoyed yeah. it. Thank you. So like her self-portrait is just so fascinating to me. Like, you know, she so she replicates this pastel by John Russell, and then she changes it in certain ways. And it's I just a in, very interesting work to me. And I think that when we look at these, there's a small subset of, of embroidered portraits, like what's going on with these embroidered portraits? Like what, you know, and I think for Mary Linwood, it was very much um, a statement of like an artist statement. Like mm-hmm. this is my, this is what I want to do. I want to be seen um, as this kind of, somebody who combines what we think about as more private, medium of embroidery mm-hmm. with fine art. And I just think that the fact that like in that portrait, she's leaning on a treatise by Leonardo. I mean, that also kind of speaks to her awareness of the artistic greats. So the chapter that I just finished writing was on Linwood's engagement with Reynolds. And it was one of the hardest chapters to write because, because it's Reynolds and lots have been written, lots has been mm-hmm. written on Reynolds and mm-hmm. I don't know much about how Linwood made these replicas of these Reynolds paintings. 
I'm assuming that um, she did some in-person study for one of them, um, but that she also relied on polygraphed versions of these paintings. Um, but I was also thinking about her engagement with Reynolds' ideas about the great style of painting. Her knowledge was really pretty fascinating. She knew about, I mean, she knew about Leonardo. She knew about other great continental artists, but she also was this champion of, of British artists and kind of walking that line between the two. So it's, it's, I just think that she was somebody who kind of is at the nexus of a bunch of different things that we think about as being polar. That portrait really encapsulates so many of the, what would seem to be contradictions, but what aren't actually contradictions at all. But I yeah. love that she has, you know, obviously she's resting her head. I'm looking at it right now. So I'm just copying yeah. it. She's yeah. resting her head against her hand, which yeah. normal, but I like that she has a finger up to her head. Like it right. feels like she's pointing out her brain, like, Hey, what's yeah. up? I'm still, this is not just aesthetic engagement. I am not just doing mindless stitching. I'm right. actually engaging with something intellectual. Yeah, exactly. And I'm thinking about what I want to do with my gallery, you know, cause she does that in yes. 1785 and that's before she really has an idea. Like, so she has an exhibition, um, in 1787 at the Pantheon. And at that point, she's got like 25 textiles, 22 textiles there. Yeah. And so she doesn't have a fully fleshed idea yet of what she wants to do. I don't think mm. it doesn't, that comes to fruition, I think in the 1780s and 90s when she's not exhibiting a lot publicly, but she's building her collection. If you can pick one or several, big question, what would be your favorite textile object or objects okay so, so sorry <laughs> um, no, no 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 so uh I would say the Bayeux tapestry for mm. me is pretty amazing and I the reason being when I was in high school I wrote my first research paper and I had this wonderful teacher it was great class and I was like can I write on this and she's like of course and I just loved doing that and I you know this so this is before I really ever had I mean I I really didn't even have an interest in embroidery at that time. I didn't think I did, um, mm. but I, evidently I did. Um, <laughs> Your subconscious knew. Yeah, exactly. So that was, so that to me, you know, and I was a history major as an undergraduate. So um, that to me early on kind of combined two of my interests, which, you know, history and a ancient British history at that, um, I just was fascinated by that. And I, um, so that to me is one of my favorites. I think if I think about Mary Linwood, that self-portrait, like if I was to, if I was to steal a Mary Linwood textile, <laughs> it would be that one, but I wouldn't steal that one because it belongs to my friends um, in South Africa. But uh, yeah, so, <laughs> I, you know, so the, <laughs> um, not that I'm condoning the theft of, of uh, historical embroidery. No, no, but no, 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 no. If no. you, if you could, yeah. if yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where I think I need to know more is um, where I'd like to know more is um, about Asian embroidery. That's mm -hmm. like a big hole for me. Um, I've not traveled to Asia yet, um, but I'd like to learn more about um, Chinese and Japanese embroidery in particular. Ooh. So, yeah. So um, that's something I hope to build on in the future, like, you know, things that I will know more about, but pretty classic and pretty classically British in my embroidery preferences. Me too. 
yeah. for good and bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me too. Exactly. You're preaching yeah. to the choir. Yeah. That's a good one. You know, I don't think anybody has ever said Bayou Tapestry as their favorite on this really? podcast, which is kind of surprising because it is a classic and important piece. So congratulations. I'm going to ask the penultimate question now. The question I ask everybody, the question that I know you already have an answer to, what do you think the role of needlework is in today's world? Oh, well, for, I think for a lot of people, it's sanity, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think that, and I joked about this, but like, again, um, with all the bad things that are going on in the world, to me, the idea of creating something with your hands that is beautiful, but also gives you the sensation of maybe just slowly stabbing something a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> it's a good juxtaposition of it's a good, it's therapeutic. This was one, one of your past podcasts, but during the pandemic, you know, it was something that a lot of people got into, but I liked what you said about it with, you know, it's something we have to have clean hands for, right? Susan so K. This is something that, yeah, exactly. I know. Crazy. Yeah. yeah loved it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think it is something that men and women can do to help keep their, their sanity. And I think it's a skill for people to know, I mean, to be able to, re, you know, to, whether it's something like actually embroidering something, or it's something like, this is how you do this with a needle. This is how you uh, fasten a button on or mm-hmm. fix like a little clasp or something like that. So I think it's both, it's practical and it is more broadly um, therapeutic. Totally. Yeah. You said the word agency earlier yeah. um, and that feels like a really good word for yeah. needlework now. Like, because even though the world sucks in so many ways, we yeah. can, you know, there is a control in stitching yeah. and it's, it's our, it's our choice. It's, we have the agency to prick something a million times. For me uh, doing what I do, I get a better sense of what Mary, of how long things took for Mary Linwood. Mm-hmm. You know, she and I, I mean, I don't do the same type of needlework that she, the same type of stitching that she did but I'm able to better guesstimate how long it would have taken her to do something, how she would have done it, um, how her eyesight would have affected this. One of the few descriptions of her as a septuagenarian describes her as um, wearing two sets of eyeglasses, spectacles, and having her um, younger students thread her needles for her. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally, I don't understand (laughs) the two sets of spectacles yet, um, but we might think of them as bifocals. You know? I guess, right? Yeah. yeah. But I totally <laughs> understand. Yeah, I know. I totally understand having somebody younger thread your needle for you. You'll have to ceremonially <laughs> put on another pair of spectacles and just exactly. sit there, two pairs of glasses thick. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and you'll, you'll really reach your true Mary Linwood form. How can people learn more about your work? And do you have anything you would like to promote? So, yes. Um, so, my book called The Art of Mary Linwood, Embroidery, Installation, and the Popular Picturesque. So you understand the embroidery part, the installation part is what I was talking about with the different rooms that she had. And the popular picturesque really speaks to this idea of her preference for British painters, and in particular, painters of the picturesque, like mm. Gainsborough, for example. Nice. Um, yeah. And um, so that's probably, if we think about the timing, with edits and everything that should be coming out, fingers crossed, early 2023. So that's going to be published by Bloomsbury US. So I will send you information about that as it becomes um, available. Thank you very much. Yep. Um, if you're more interested in more on embroidered self-portraits, um, there's the article that I wrote in Literary Compass. And so that is about embroidered 
portraits produced by women in the 18th century. So that's a pretty specific focus that talks about embroidered portraits as um, a tool of agency, as an expression of agency. And then um, the most recent publication that I have um, done on Mary Linwood was from April of 2022. And this is a blog post, so very accessible, not a lot of academic language. Um, and it's called Mary Linwood's uh, Juggling Act. And it is part of Erica Gaffney's um, website, arthistory.net. Um, and so this is um, just, it, it again, kind of my thinking aloud about how this woman who lived so long ago was able to juggle some of the same things that um, many of us today do in academia. How did she do this? It's also a place where I was able to kind of um, think more liberally about what are the things I know about Mary Linwood and what are things I don't, what are the things that I can um, surmise? Sometimes I feel bad in that I don't know that the historical record has so many gaps with her, but then mm. I'm like, no, it's my job as somebody who's interested, who's somebody who's a textile historian, somebody's interested in gender studies to try to fill these gaps with well-researched possibilities. Love that. And that's where, the, that's where the fun and the adventure comes in. Love it. So, Lots yeah. to read. I will put links to all of this stuff up on the So What social Great. media pages so everybody can read, read, read and get excited for the book. Heidi, thank you so much. This has been truly a joy and a treat and I've learned an incredible amount. So thank you. Thank you so much, Isabella. Hi again, it's me. Thank you so much to Heidi for the wonderful interview. I learned so much. I can't wait to learn even more about Mary Linwood in her upcoming book. This was a very lengthy, jam-packed interview, so I'll keep this conclusion short. I could end this episode by talking about a lot of different themes that came up in the interview, like the artificial divide between amateur and professional, genre bending in 18th century needlework, aging out of your own art's popularity, but I'll end with one of my favorite things that Heidi mentioned, which is the depiction of textiles within textiles. Heidi brought that up while discussing Linwood's embroidery of Christ consecrating bread and wine, taken from a painting by Salvatore Mundi. Linwood's depiction of woven textiles in her embroidered ones is fascinating. How does one make woolen threads look like lustrous silk or like handmade lace? It speaks not only to the power of stitching, but also to the skill of a talented stitcher. That embroidery has the ability to successfully mimic a variety of other textiles. The needle painting women of the 18th century really used that to their advantage. It wasn't just paint they turned into stitch, it was also the warp and weft of all the fabrics under the sun. And what a beautiful testament to the flexibility and universality of textiles that is. That's all I've got for this wonderfully gargantuan episode. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for sticking with So What as we release episodes on a more irregular schedule. You are the best, all of you, each and every one of you. We'll be back soon with more historical needlework goodness, and finally, some non-interview episodes too. See you soon! Now go out and stitch some stories and impress all your friends with the fact that the first gallery owner in London was a needleworker. Bye! Thank you.